G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again, and how are you? I'm going well. I'm uh, oh, I'm going very well at the moment, Dad. We're uh, recording this towards the end of the World Cup, and I'll tell you what, I've been in heaven, I reckon, the, uh, the last month or so. I've been a bit of a zombie with a, a lack of sleep in some ways, but very much been enjoying myself, that's for sure. Yes, it's been really entertaining, hasn't it? I've tended to watch the matches more around 6 o'clock in the morning, but there's been a lot of drama in those matches. It's been fantastic as we head to the final. Absolutely, and now we, we better get on to today's podcast topic, Dad, otherwise we'll be stuck here waxing lyrical about the World Cup all day. But we've called today's episode Measuring and Monitoring to Promote Positive Change. So what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, one of the most important principles in psychology and psychological change or changing behaviour is that we have some way of monitoring or measuring what we're looking to change. Because when people are looking to deal with any particular difficulties, often it might involve, say, increasing a certain kind of healthy behaviour that can even include exercise, or it might be decreasing a certain kind of behaviour, like it might be cigarette smoking or alcohol or the number of times people are losing their temper or something like that. Now, when it boils down to it, when people monitor something, it actually helps it change. So when we're monitoring our behaviour or something measurable related to our difficulty or our behaviour, we're not just seeing how it is at the time, we're also kind of motivating ourselves to improve on it. Just even the fact that we're measuring something with an intention of that situation improving, there's an incentive to see that we are, for example, increasing positive behaviours or decreasing negative behaviours or working closer to our goal in some way. So there's a lot of therapeutic benefit simply in monitoring and measuring something that we want to change. And it's interesting, I know we'll, we'll potentially talk about this a little bit later, like we'll mainly focus on monitoring and measuring in a therapy context today, but I find it interesting having a bit of a chat about this off air, Dad, that like we seem to do this in, you know, for example, other areas of our life, like, you know, for example, you want to save a bit of money, you might start a budget for yourself or, you know, if you either want to, you know, for example, lose a bit of weight or gain a bit of weight at the gym sort of thing, you might start a, a meal program and, and begin, for example, calorie counting. So it seems that we almost have an awareness of this idea of how monitoring can affect change in other aspects of our life, but it's not necessarily something that you normally associate with therapy in some ways. So I suppose it'll be interesting to unpack that a little bit more with you, even just in terms of how exactly it comes into therapy. Yes, and we'll talk about therapy shortly, but look, I'm very conscious of how it comes into other areas because I've just been to the dentist. And as many people would find when you go to the dentist for a checkup, they might do some kind of probe of your gums, for example. They get this little needle-like thing and they're pressing different parts your gums and they see if any areas maybe reflect that you need to do better teeth brushing or something like that. Unfortunately, I do in some areas need to get my habits a little bit better in certain areas, but by probing in that particular way, they find which parts of your gums aren't so healthy and it's that monitoring that then guides you how you might change your behaviour to address it. 
And also, if that's going well, that monitoring, like last time I had a checkup, that was all encouraging, this time less encouraging, but it actually motivates you to change your behaviour, for example, how you brush or floss in a particular area. It's in many, many walks of life, but people would find that whenever they seek some help for professional services in a whole range of areas, there's some kind of assessment or monitoring to get an idea of the nature of your problem or whether it be your physical health with checking your blood pressure when you go to the doctor or it could be your financial health looking at things like your budgeting for example so in many areas of life we're actually used to involving some kind of measurement but sometimes it might be under recognized how that kind of assessment overlaps with benefits of therapy well, for sure, and it's interesting even using that metaphor of going to the dentist because it seems that a big part of that, what they do at the dentist, it's almost like, say, trying to isolate the problem area. And it seems to me that there's an element of monitoring which can really help with that in terms of if I walk into a psychology practice and, you know, I might be feeling just down in general and maybe have a bit of an ambiguous sense of that not know specifically what even it is that's exactly causing me to feel a certain way in a situation. But maybe if we bring some monitoring practices into therapy, like some questionnaires, I believe, that we'll maybe have a chat about in a moment, exactly what those monitoring practices in therapy can be, well, then that can help us to even get more specific about what it is in a particular situation that is causing us distress as opposed to maybe another time when it, it could have been something completely different, even though the broad feeling might be similar that we're, we're you know, just feeling down in general. Yes, that's a very good point. So when we think of evaluation or monitoring, it actually helps you think more clearly about what you want to change. And so there's some measures that we use in a psychology practice, looking at this setting, that would be common areas that people would want to improve. So generally people are experiencing a certain level of psychological distress. Well, the main dimensions of distress are anxiety and depression. So we're going to tend to measure that with very many people. But there might be other more specific situations, like you're saying, to isolate the problem. Sometimes we might use the same questionnaires to screen for or evaluate the extent to which a person has, for example, a trauma reaction or likely a post-traumatic stress disorder or the person might have an eating disorder or they might have certain personality difficulties around avoidance or social anxiety. We've got different specific measures to look at those different types of more specific areas. And it both helps assess the nature of the difficulty that people's presenting with, like it could be an advantage to identify an underlying post-traumatic stress disorder where painful memories are triggered and that affects people's depression down the track, or identifying an eating disorder that goes with certain kind of behaviours that a questionnaire will ask about, or to look at people's anger reactions. And the same questionnaires sometimes that we use to screen for or evaluate problems, we can also use those same questionnaires down the track to see if that behaviour or that area has changed. Has there been an improvement in people's reaction to trauma memories or in their eating patterns or in their anger reactions. So it's both identifying and isolating, as you say, the nature of the problem at first, but also it can help measure change in more specific as well as more general areas like anxiety and depression. And I suppose the interesting thing about that for me anyway is like why that is 
that we rely on measurement so much for so many things. Like even some of those examples that you spoke about there, like it's not even necessarily individually administered the kind of measurement that we do have, like whether we go to a doctor or whether we go to a, a professional who can help us measure something, you know, like a, like a dentist sort of thing. But I suppose relating to psychology, like what strikes me is that, you know, in some ways humans are so good at deceiving ourselves in a way. So, you know, if you were to ask me, for example, you know, how have you, for example, been over the last couple of weeks, I would probably fail even if I had the very best of intentions to accurately describe that in in terms of from the moment to moment and all this sort of stuff like it's just simply I, I, I'd forget and I sort of aren't able to conceptualize that all at once but what strikes me is by having a practice like some sort of measurement practice like a questionnaire it's almost like you can keep coming back to almost like a, a cognitive home base if, if that makes sense in terms of it's like there's there's so many distractions going on in the world and there's oh, I suppose so much you know overwhelming feeling at times that can be hard to even specify exactly what the different elements of, of that feeling are but like it strikes me that that practice of narrowing things down and not necessarily thinking of, of things in such a big picture could help to get past some of that self-deception. Yes, well, that's a good example of how people might use mood monitoring. For example, if people are dealing with depression, they might forget how things were two weeks ago or three weeks ago compared to last week, compared to yesterday. So one of the things that we'll often do when people are dealing with depression is have some simple rating of their mood each day. And sometimes we also might compare that with people looking at what kind of activities they've engaged in. For example, it might be a weekly activity schedule where people note down the particular activities they're engaging in and how they felt at the time when they did that activity. Because afterwards people might forget, but we can look back over a sheet summarising those things and identify, look, it seems when you're lying on your bed, you're actually in a fairly low mood, but when you're going for a walk or having some social contact with a friend, your mood might only be a 2 or 3 out of 10, but it's not a 0 or a 1. It's actually an improvement, and you can look for patterns that way. So as you're saying, in part our memories can be mistaken and unreliable, but also you were saying about self-deception. And I'm interested in that also from the point of view of therapists. Because as therapists, we can tend to focus on when things are going well and downplay if some people aren't making the improvements that we'd be looking for them to make. And so that's where it's interesting that when therapists are asked about how good they are as therapists, 80% of therapists say they're better than average. Well, how can it be more than 50%? So that shows that there's a self-deception which is normal in everyday life. It's kind of maybe looking at ourselves through rose-coloured glasses. Now, something about monitoring, including for therapists having some kind of objective gauge of how clients are going in terms of improving symptoms, then that helps us be more realistic about the effect of our interventions. And that's why across our practice, certainly since 2007, for 15 years, we've looked to monitor the progress of every single client using certain measures because we know that also we can be prone to deceive ourselves. So that kind of monitoring helps draw on the principles of science of objective scientific method, not get so caught up in 
error or unreliable judgments, draw on something a little bit more objective, it helps keep us honest. And how that works for therapists is it can help us adapt or change our plans if the therapy isn't going in the best direction for the person or they're not improving as much as we or they would hope. It just helps keep the whole process more honest and we know that the therapist's who use some kind of monitoring or evaluation as part of their routine ways of working tend to be more effective in the long run and get better results. That's one of the main reasons to use it as well. And the other thing that strikes me about that is how it could help with, for example, framing something. And I suppose this is to the benefit of of both the therapist and the client in some ways in terms of like when we're struggling, I think we can maybe have a tendency to over-focus on the big picture in a way in terms of, you know, oh, I'm not feeling great, so therefore, you know, my, not, my life's not going how I'd want it to and, you know, it can become quite overwhelming in terms of just the, I suppose, broad aspect that we start to take things in at. But it strikes me that if we focus on, say, like smaller, more specific aspects, such as, say, like through, like, say, monitoring questionnaires in terms of, you know, we can come into the, the therapy room and go, oh, you know, I've been feeling rubbish in just about every aspect of my life recently. And that could be, you know, a legitimate thought in terms of, you know, someone who could say that would in no way be lying when they do say that. But then you could go through, for example, some more specific questionnaires about maybe the smaller elements of their life, like, you know, how are, for example, your relationships with your friends, how's, you know, your enjoyment of your favourite sports team, you know, whatever it is sort of thing. And then you can kind of go hold on, you know, you've given me this almost big picture idea that things are a certain way, but if we look at these, say, three smaller pictures and, you know, ignore all the other stuff for a little while, well, surely those smaller pictures would, you know, contribute to a bit more of a positive big picture than the one that you're giving me. And it strikes me that if we almost look at things in this way in terms of breaking things down and almost evaluating things on a smaller scale then it can help us see if there are times or if there are situations when it's almost like our construction of the big picture is flawed in a way. It's almost like you you sort of work your way back up from the ground up and you sort of put the pieces together and you realise, hold on, actually, you know, it's, it's, it's not maybe as bad overall as I thought it was, but it's not until you almost go through the process of, of sort of putting all the pieces together and realising how everything is in isolation before you are able to ascertain how things are more broadly. Yes, well, as you say, there's that big picture aspect where if people are experiencing a clinical depression or what we might call major depressive disorder, then people are going to tend to view things in a quite negative way. And when people think of their past or their present day or their future, we'll tend to think in global negative terms. But like you're saying, if we break it down to, say, a more specific behaviour, For example, I can remember one fellow who was seriously depressed, had a chronic post-traumatic stress disorder to do with a terrible situation that occurred when he was involved as a policeman. There was a fatality that he had to attend at that stage. It had a major impact on him in different ways. Very depressed, but one way he started to get himself going is he lived on a farm and he thought, well, I'm going to walk to that nearby dam. It was only a couple of hundred metres away. But when he did that, he could think, well, at least I did that. And in a sense, then by monitoring the days or the number of times he'd walk to that dam, then getting used to do it, that's part of what we call behavioural activation. Sometimes to amplify the benefits of behavioural activation, we might look for someone to actually note down 
each time they go for a walk or engage in some exercise and they can look back over the week and think, well, five days out of the seven, I got myself going or what time did I get out of bed that morning? Rather than 10 o'clock, 10.30, no, five days out of seven, I got up before 8 a.m. Now, that might not be the optimal time even then to get up, but it's a massive improvement. So that's something that people with depression can sometimes do that helps them if they realise that they've been just lying in bed in the morning to look at monitoring their time of getting up and staying up. So by changing something specific, that can often lead to more general changes and some improvements in depression. And that's where we've talked before in our episodes on changing personality aspects like schema therapy. You might pick some particular area of your life that you're looking to change, like it might be avoidance of certain social situations, and just by monitoring the number of times you're making contact with other people socially, that can be some kind of encouragement. Well, I wonder if a big part of that is like, for example, when we are monitoring something over a period of time, it's almost like we we set an intention in a way and we put in almost like the infrastructure to keep coming back to that intention sort of thing. So like there's almost this degree to which when we're monitoring something, we're holding ourselves to account over a longer period of time. Like for example, I could say, oh, I want to save a, a certain amount of money. But unless I, for example, have a budget and almost like come back to that regularly, it's almost like I have no way of almost like rechecking back in with that intention. It's like oh, I'm almost like relying on the strength of that intention in the first place. But when we have something like a monitoring practice, it's almost like a support for that intention. Yeah, look, I think that's a good way of putting it. Like when we monitor something like you're describing, there are many different elements to it. And part of it, as you say, is setting an intention. So that means that you stop and think about what do I want to change? In a sense, where am I going to get most return from effort? And that could be worked out with a therapist as well. It could be from increasing your social situations you're engaging in. It could be through increasing physical exercise. It might be from using a trauma therapy technique to try and reduce the frequency of intrusive thoughts or nightmares. But whatever you measure, you're kind of clarifying your focus. And so... You're not just clarifying what intention that you have more broadly, but you're thinking in more practical terms, what do I want to change? How would things look if they'd improved? Well, how, how can I measure that in some way? And then in the meantime, you're evaluating it. When you're monitoring something, and it could be as simple as exercise, you're learning about your patterns of when things go better or when they go worse. When you're monitoring your mood, Certainly it helps you identify when things are going better or when things are going worse. So it's kind of encouraging and mobilising. It's focusing your efforts. And because you've chosen that as your goal that you're measuring, also when you're going well and you see improvements, it's like a reward. I'll give you an example of a reward. A student who I was seeing who had panic attacks which were interfering with her school attendance on those days when she woke up feeling more nervous or anxious in whatever way, then she'd be more likely to miss school. But after making improvements using a number of other strategies, then she took it on herself to start monitoring the frequency, the proportion of days that she was getting to school. And that was actually a requirement of continuing at school to get there for a certain number of days. And she made an Excel graph and monitored the graph. And by seeing the improvements, 
that was a reward in itself. And we could look at her phone with the graph on it that she'd made from, as I say, an Excel program. Or people could even record something on a sheet of paper. If people have their own way of recording it, that can help. Or sometimes a therapist might give someone a sheet to record something in particular. But in this example, that was very encouraging for this student to realise that she was winning in that approach of getting to school more regularly. And monitoring helped that motivation continue. Well, I suppose that's an interesting aspect of all this in terms of like very often with monitoring, the monitoring itself is the reward in some ways. Like I can think of, you know, for example, times that I've had a to-do list, Dad. There's almost no better feeling sometimes than when you get to the end of a long to-do list and you almost, you know, you put your final red pen stroke through your final task for the day and you, you sit back with this just sense of satisfaction as having completed everything. But it's almost like throughout the day, like the highlight of my day some days, Dad, which it sounds a little bit sad now I'm saying it like this, but it's almost like that. It's like when you, you know, you're at work and you're going through a number of tasks, it's like, oh, I'll get to cross one off now and you, you pull out your red pen and you mark it off and away you go into the next thing. It's almost like just the very act of monitoring in itself is, is the reward. Terrific. Well, there's a good example. To-do lists and then marking it off is a really good example of monitoring in terms of your intentions and your rewards. And I'll bet every single time you mark off one of those tasks with a red pen, it'll be a release of dopamine. Because what dopamine is about is it's about motivation over a period of time. It's about being able to achieve goals that involve some kind of delay or effort. And so marking off things on a to-do list, that's a classic example. So dopamine is in particular anticipation of reward. And that's the other thing. If you get used to that kind of monitoring, marking things off a to-do list then that means the next day you make a to-do list and the day after you're more likely to be confident that you're actually going to be able to mark off those things at the end of the day and so you're getting some dopamine even before you've achieved the goal because you're anticipating reward and that's partly how people benefit from monitoring certain kind of activities including monitoring mood and physical activity. If they see that on the days that they're engaging in more physical activity and spending less time lying on their bed, for example, that their mood is a bit better, then that means that even if people don't feel like it, if they can get themselves moving early in the day when experiencing depression, people can more likely anticipate getting some benefit down the track and that helps become what we might call a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle. More motivated... It helps you achieve the goal, you get more encouragement for doing it again, you've monitored it in some way, you see the evidence of improvement, that helps for that virtuous cycle. What I wonder then is how do we monitor in therapy, for example, because like a to-do list is pretty binary, you've either done it or you haven't done it, but something like, for example, mood or like, you know, for example, how someone's going, like these can be a little bit more of a grey area, like I think, for example, of a, a teenager coming home from school and their parent would basically try and monitor I'm sure for you know days and weeks and even months at times on end how their kids going and they say oh you know how is school today and the answer in all those situations is probably somewhere between oh yeah not too bad and yeah it was all right sort of thing so it's almost like how on earth do you monitor with someone in terms of when they're talking about their mood and all these almost grey areas and almost these ambiguous things in someone's life. How on earth do you, I suppose, objectively measure something like that? 
Okay, and before I answer that, how we do that in this practice, I might mention that's especially relevant at the moment, this question, in a couple of ways. In a more specific way, yesterday I met with a team of people at one of the Melbourne-based universities where they were looking at introducing more measures into their staff clinic. So that's where people attend for help, often with mood disorders or anxiety-related reactions, depression, relationship difficulties. So what kind of things might we monitor? Now, the other thing that's relevant, we'll talk about a little bit later on, is that the government's very recently released a report on the Better Access Scheme. So this is a scheme where people get rebates for seeing a psychologist for therapy for things like anxiety and depression. And the government has asked for research evidence about that, and our practice has been involved in that, that I'll mention later on. So at one level, how does a university clinic be confident that the students in developing their therapy approaches are helping the clients who attend that clinic to show that the therapists, the student therapists, are learning their skills well? How does a government be confident that services funded through the Better Access Scheme are giving a decent bang for the buck, so to speak? How does a client be confident that they're improving in response to therapy? How is a therapist going to be confident that the ways that they're working with people tends to be effective relative to other therapists? There are actually some broad ways of evaluation that can help serve all of these goals relatively well, at least to some extent. And so how do we do that in our practice? Well, We look at it this way. Most people present in distress. They're experiencing emotional distress and commonly it involves the two main dimensions of emotional distress, anxiety and depression. So we're going to have some kind of measure of anxiety and depression. And so we use something called the Depression, Anxiety and Stress Scale, the DAS. Now, Using this questionnaire that has 21 items on it, that will take people several minutes to fill out. So we'll get people to do that at the start of therapy. We'll often get people to repeat it at session 5, then at session 10, and at the end of therapy, and any time in between that we think it would be helpful for any reason. So we're monitoring depression and anxiety symptoms over time. But the other thing is we don't just want to alleviate symptoms. We work on a positive psychology model, so we want people also to enhance their positive well-being. So we also use something called a satisfaction with life scale. It only takes a minute to fill out, but people basically say, you know, the conditions of my life are quite good, something along those lines. And so people answer a number of questions about that, and we're looking to boost people's satisfaction with life. We also use something called the positive and negative affect scale, the PANAS. And one of the main reasons we use that is that it doesn't just gauge negative emotions like feeling distressed or guilty or hostile or nervous, but it also measures positive emotions such as feeling excited or enthusiastic or alert or determined. So you get a balance of both the negative and the positive. And often what we find is at the start of therapy, people might have something like one-to-one or one-and-a-half-to-one positive-to-negative emotions, which is not such a good balance. You want more. But if people are reaching a level which is about average, they'll have more like two-to-one positive-to-negative emotions. And if people are flourishing then it will tend to be more like about three to one 
positive to negative emotions on that scale. So it's nice to be able to give people feedback that not only have they alleviated their anxiety and depression, but also they're showing signs of improved satisfaction with life and also their positive to negative emotion ratio would suggest that they're flourishing. That's a different level of feedback that we can give. So they're the main measures that we use on an intermediate basis. So session 1, 5, 10, and then a final session to track that progress. We wouldn't use those every session because it would take too long. But people can generally fill those out in about seven or eight minutes, and it's very good return for the information that we get from the questionnaire and the person can get from that, but also in measuring that progress. But in addition, we use a simple little measure on each occasion we see someone, each session. We spend about 60 seconds at the start of the session. People just give feedback in terms of four different ratings about how they're going with themselves personally or socially or overall, and they're rating their well-being that way. And that gives us a quick picture of people's well-being. And because we get that measure on every single session, you can really see a graph develop over a period of time. And you're looking for some improvement on that graph, at least within about five sessions. If that's not happening, then often we'd stop and think, is there something else we need to be adding? Or is there some obvious reason that might be blocking progress that we'd be looking to? Is there some way we need to alter our treatment direction? Actually, it helps keep you honest that way. But also... It's encouraging for clients to see that progress. And sometimes it's a bit up and down, that progress, which can be normal. But sometimes at a certain point, if not straight away, but sometimes after a handful of sessions, you see it start to consistently improve a little bit more on that very quick and simple measure. So it's a less sophisticated measure, but because we use it on every single occasion, you can see that overall graph of well-being shift. And that's very useful to starting off a session with some brief discussion on how someone's going. And usually the person's own feeling of how they're going will match the graph. But sometimes people might misremember. They might think, oh, look, I've gone right back to where I was at the start. I'm feeling just as bad as then. And we can show them the graph and they might have only gone back half as far. Nowhere near as bad as they were at the start, so to speak, in their mood. And so that can give people encouragement as well, more objectively showing improvement. Because one of the main things I find when showing people their questionnaire scores from earlier on, people forget how distressed they felt then as they're making improvement. One of the most therapeutic things is showing people their subsequent questionnaires and that shift or that change, including sometimes where they think they've slipped but they've nowhere near slipped back to the start very often. What I find interesting about that is the degree to which you do discuss that with a client because, like, I wonder in terms of, you know, it could almost go two ways, I wonder. Like, it could almost be like someone fills out those questionnaires for the first time and it could be validating in a way for someone to say, hey, you know, I recognise that you've really been struggling and, you know, the the questionnaire, the answer's... And the answers that you've given to these questionnaires, you know, really let me know that. And so, you know, we're going to try our very best to, you know, help you the best we can. But at the same time, someone could almost come in and answer those questionnaires. And for example, if it was something to do with a a trauma event, and like I know there is at the impact of event scale, where you're basically, you're answering questions on how often an event comes back into your mind and things like this. Like, 
if I went into a, a psychologist's office and I started answering these questions, and for example, all of the answers were suggesting that I was still quite affected by that event, well, that could be quite daunting in a way to think, you know, geez, like I'm, I still am, you know, quite affected by this. Or like even with, for example, questionnaires about, say, depression and anxiety, like talking about if someone, for example, passes a threshold that I believe, you know, there's ranges, for example, you know, a, a range that we consider someone to be, for example, anxious or depressed. Like there's potentially elements of, you know, labelling someone or I suppose consolidating in some ways that way of being by almost seeing it sort of confirmed in in an you know, in a more objective sense, maybe not a fully objective sense, but it's kind of confirmed externally from them. So can you speak to that a little bit about whether, I suppose, in principle, people find it more validating to, I suppose, be understood to that degree or whether it can be a bit overwhelming at times to even recognise the degree to which you are affected by something? That's a really good question because it goes partly to the heart of clinical psychology and priorities in clinical psychology. And it used to often happen that people would say, oh, clinical psychologists, as I am, like psychiatrists, tend to focus too much on pathology, on the negative. And I think that's to misunderstand something. There is a point behind it if, as psychologists, we don't also look to the positive like improvements in positive well-being, which is partly why we measure that as well. But I think there's something that's often validating and can give a person relief if they get feedback, for example, that they're showing signs consistent with a post-traumatic stress disorder that we subsequently assess in more detail, even sometimes using a structured interview or more specific questions to get into fine-grained detail about someone's response to an assault or car accident or their war experience or their childhood sexual experience. By using different kinds of measures that help get more of a three-dimensional understanding of people's post-traumatic stress reactions, including the frequency and the intensity of their trauma memories, sometimes we can say to people, look, the way that you've responded to this is consistent with someone experiencing a moderate to severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And we would see many people in our practice who have reactions similar to that, but that generally means people are likely to get the most relief if we also use a form of therapy that specifically targets trauma memories. And it gives us more of a rationale to be able to say to the person, look, part of the therapy might be very uncomfortable. It might mean deliberately reliving certain painful memories in order to help defuse their impact. But this is the reason why. And I can truly say to people, for example, that when we use EMDR, a particular therapy technique for trauma memories when people have a post-traumatic stress disorder, that on average people make as much improvement from the EMDR stage of therapy as they do from the rest of therapy combined. And most people who go through that therapy, in the medium to long run, their trauma-related symptoms will settle to no more than a mild level. Now, We've got 15 to 20 years of data backing up that kind of statement. And often people's distress reactions will about halve on average. 
That's pretty good. Often if they halve, also people's depression will improve and we've got evidence to say to people that also in the past when we've evaluated and monitored people's response to this therapy, first of all, their post-traumatic stress symptoms come down and their trauma memories ease, they're not having as many nightmares or intrusive thoughts and automatically their depression tends to improve by about half as well. Got lots of data on that. So that's where, because we've got the explanation and the rationale, it helps in the first instance the person feel, well, it's not like they're just terribly wrong or they should be guilty for having these reactions or it's just that they're really soft in the head. Many other people who faced similar challenging difficulties have responded with similar scores and responses on these questionnaires and the questions that we ask them in an interview or something along those lines. There are different levels of detail we can go into with our evaluation. But it helps us have more of a three-dimensional view of where someone's at. And so even with depression, if someone comes in and say they're clinically depressed, then we'd typically use some questionnaires and I would often say to someone, look, this fits with what we talked about before with a major depressive disorder, we call it, or a clinical depression. And what that means is that you have at least five of those nine symptoms that I asked you about, and now we've used this questionnaire to gauge a little bit further. Your level of depression is around about average for people who are attending this practice for help with depression. Now, that actually can be somewhat validating to people. They feel they're not alone. They recognise that we're using therapy techniques that might be relevant to them. And even if we say to someone look, your depression level is actually quite severe, even more so than most people are attending this practice for major depressive disorder. However, we know from past experience with hundreds of people with depression that they've improved substantially. And in fact, the people with the more severe depressive symptoms at first tend to have an even greater reduction in their score over a period of time from therapy. Now, we might expect that because it's called something like regression to the mean. If people have more extreme depression scores at first, there's more room for them to come down. But we can also objectively tell them. People typically go through substantial improvement when they present with those difficulties. So I think rather than the person thinking, oh my God, I've been told I have a post-traumatic stress disorder or, oh gosh, my depression is moderate to severe, I think often people get the sense that, hey, there's a handle on what I'm dealing with now. It makes it more objectively defined. It makes it relevant that way. But there's something in what you're saying as well. We don't ever want people to be reduced to just symptoms. These questionnaires are helpful and ways of evaluating progress are helpful. But it's not all there is. That's why when we see clients at the start of therapy, we ask them, what do you hope to gain from seeing me? Or what do you hope to gain from coming here? And they might say, an improvement in my relationship with my children. Or they might say, I want to feel more confident in this setting, in my work setting, in dealing with people and maybe being less shy in some way. They'll put it in their own ways. They might even just say, I want to get back to my normal self, my normal usual self that I haven't felt that way for six months. Now, we use the person's own language. We actually even record it in our database of what people's hopes are so we can look at their point of view, their language, their hopes. And then later on at the end of therapy, we can say, hey, when you first came in, you said how you hope to have this improvement in your relationship with your children, in your confidence in that work setting. How's that gone? 
And so we don't want to lose sight of those more, if you like, humanistic ways of putting things and the person's own wishes rather than just reducing it to symptoms. But symptoms help for objectivity. Well, I think it really is about that thing that you said there in terms of having a 3D view. Like it strikes me that objective measures in themselves help to give that 3D view. Like if we just look at, you know, these objective symptoms, in some ways it's going to be absolutely no help unless it's contextualised, you know, I suppose in someone's life and what they think about, what the results of those assessments are and that sort of thing. So I suppose there's the, the aspect of, you know, objective measures contributing to that 3D picture. But it strikes me that we can use a whole range of different measures to almost like further construct that 3D picture itself. And I've been talking about this, you know, report that we contributed to at the practice. And we had a bit of a, a chat about it off air where I believe Mark Butler, the, the current health minister, when he was basically announcing this report and as part of that, there was the reduction of the 20 subsidised Medicare sessions to 10 subsidised Medicare sessions. I believe one of the things that he said was basically that this report had stated that beyond 10 sessions, basically from 10 to 20 sessions, people weren't experiencing much improvement in that time. And he basically saw that as, as justification for removing those 20 sessions but it strikes me as we talk about all this sort of stuff now that potentially you need a little bit more even than that report to talk about I suppose things in such general terms like that like you know we can talk about for example depressive and anxiety symptoms maybe they reduced in that time and maybe there was less of a reduction between 10 and and 20 sessions but at the same time like if we are talking about things like whether it be trauma or even stuff like, you know, managing things like ADHD and, and borderline personality disorder. And there can be other, uh, I suppose, mental health issues that maybe are a little bit more complicated and maybe require a little bit more of a 3D picture than simply just, you know, even sitting down and chatting with a, a psychologist. And it strikes me that, A, these measures can, can help us get more of that 3D picture but also, as you're saying, in terms of maybe not reducing people to their symptoms, maybe we shouldn't oversubscribe sometimes into, into what these statistics are telling us too. Yes, well, actually, there's something very relevant that's come up, as you say, about Mark Butler describing that people who were seen for more than 10 sessions overall didn't seem to do better than those who were seen for 10 sessions or less. Now, that can be a little bit misleading in this way because we've got data in this practice that's relevant to that. And the thing is, if you just compare the people seen up to 10 sessions and then there's a different group of people who were seen for more than 10 sessions and they get similar kind of results. Well, the chances are the group of people seen for more than 10 sessions had more complicated problems in the first place. Like you said, they might have complex trauma reactions, something we might refer to as a borderline personality disorder, where the person has more instability in their behaviour, for example. There might be people with severe relationship problems in addition to depression. People might have had recent job losses or trauma in addition. So they might, in a sense, need more sessions. And if they end up at the same point as people seen for 10 sessions or fewer, they might be doing pretty well because they might have more complex difficulties. But the best test of that is something that we've got 
actual data on and we've got that on the research page of our website we presented that at a conference in 2016 the the international cognitive behavioral therapy conference and what we showed is that when people were seen for more than 10 sessions because we had data on their anxiety and depressive symptoms at session one five ten and then final data and if we compared that also we had some well-being data at session 1, 5, 10 and final data. And what we found is for those people who were seen for more than 10 sessions, they kept on improving between 10 and, for example, 15 or more sessions. So, for example, the people with major depressive disorder, we looked at 200 people who met that diagnosis. For those people who were seen for more than 10 sessions, they continued to improve up to the average of 17 sessions. As a matter of fact, it was only when they got to the 17 sessions on average, the full number of sessions, that their depressive symptoms came down to a more normal level, still just within the depressive range, the mild depressive range, but they improved further after 10 sessions. Now, this recent report didn't highlight that kind of longitudinal data. It was more comparing just before and after data for these different groups. So I know that the Australian Psychological Society used our data on that longitudinal assessment, say, over 10 years ago to highlight that further sessions beyond the 10 give benefit, including further symptom reduction. So that was a little bit misleading, I think, what Mark Butler was describing. I can understand the incentive to contain sessions and see that more people have a look in because it's been harder for people to access sessions since they were increased from 10 to 20. But there shouldn't be any suggestion that people are not getting further benefit beyond the 10. When we give them further sessions beyond the 10, we've got that hard evidence. There's what we call a dose-response relationship. The dose, more sessions. More sessions, further improvement. And we've got that on the research page of our website. And I'll put the link to that research up on the podcast page for today, which you can get at psychspills.com.au because we've got quite a little bit of research we've done over the time. Dad, I know it's been one of your little pet projects over the last, gosh, even 15 years or so now. So we'll, we'll put all that up on the podcast page for today. But I suppose it's interesting talking about all this sort of stuff, Dad, because, you know, in some ways, like, you know, even you know, I've, I've worked here at the practice for a, for a long time now and we've had a, a chat about all this sort of stuff. And, like, it's interesting, you know... In, it's not something that you do often, I think, come across in psychologies. You know, for example, people who give objective measures almost like across the board in principle sort of thing. But like, it's so interesting as we've been talking about this and having to think about this now, how many other aspects of performance, for example, there are in life where we do measure things. And it's it, there isn't this sense that, oh, you, you know, you can't measure it and it won't make a difference sort of thing. Like potentially there is with some people in therapy. And like I was even thinking about it in terms of, you know, Dad, how many people with a golf handicap never go off and play a game? And it's almost like it's just this almost pursuit of a number, just this kind of arbitrary kind of mythical number that who, who knows what you'll get to, but it's just this pursuit of measurement almost in its kind of pure form and even, you know, mentioned things like, say, budgeting earlier on and, you know, even stuff like journaling I think is a, a form of measurement as well. But like one of the things that really struck me about this is I've come across this program, like a software program that I use quite a bit called Notion. 
It's basically like a it's a project management tool. It's a you know it's a diary. It's basically you know I use it for a whole range of things. But you can download a whole bunch of these templates that you know people put up sort of different templates for this program that they've found helpful for themselves. And what strikes me is looking through these template libraries is just how many of them seem to be almost templates for measurement in different people's almost facets of their life in a way. Like it might be, for example, a habit tracker where, you know, every day you can sort of tick a box and so you can, you know, count over the course of the week how many times, you know, you meditated, you exercised, you called your grandma, you ate a healthy meal, whatever all these things are that you want to track over time. There's a almost like subgroup of like, oh, I've come across them as say entrepreneurs, but they're, they're say people who often work for themselves, who often, you know, have started a business on their own and work within sort of a team and are basically sort of, you know, getting things going off their own bat. And so many of them kind of involve themselves in this, whether it be measurement infrastructure in a way, and, you know, it has absolutely nothing to do with therapy. But at the same time, I would almost consider them to be measuring things that we wouldn't traditionally measure in a way, you know, it's sort of, you can go through life and have a very sort of happy, successful life without, you know, counting the amount of times that you meditated throughout a week. But what I suppose it shows me that, you know, these people are, I suppose, so into, you know, measurement and stuff like goal setting, habit tracking, all this sort of stuff is that they see benefit for it, even when it's say like the positive side of things, not about, you know, being in therapy and I suppose, yeah, trying to alleviate symptoms in a way. It just seems to me that there is this aspect to which measurement helps performance. And, you know, we see it in sport all the time, you know, like you have sports people who, you know, go as far as having calipers on their arms, taking the millimetres of fat in their bicep muscle, all this sort of stuff. Like we can take measurement a long way, Dad, but it does strike me that people who are in pursuit of performance are aware that there is this aspect of measurement that really helps things. That's a very good example that you mentioned there because if people are going to measure, have an intention and then measure something like, well, exercise or diet or even achieving goals in their work life, that's actually relevant to our mental health. These things are relevant to our physical and mental health. So that's where we can think also of psychological progress and behaviour change more broadly. It doesn't just have to be from seeing a psychologist in a certain therapy setting. Anything that we do which is looking to achieve a positive goal is likely to be helpful for our health. And I'm reminded by what you said there with people monitoring different things and entrepreneurs Well, years ago, organisational psychologists did some research that I heard of decades ago, and they're looking at what helps people be the most effective managers or supervisors in a team setting. And they looked at things like, do they have an encouraging kind of manner? Uh, Do they look to reward people more than other teams? Or do they monitor people more closely in relevant variables than others? And they found that the monitoring was the most important thing. Now, monitoring will work best if it's in everybody's interests. So it's not just monitoring or measuring people's behaviour in a punitive way. It's where you have a shared goal. You want to achieve that objective. Everyone shares in some of the benefits of achieving those kind of goals. If you've got that kind of culture where people look to bring about change together and you've got these more clarified and focused goals and you measure it, that's how you're likely to get even more return 
because of the reward that comes from seeing that you're reaching your goals and the feedback that comes from recognising when you're not. So you can change something that can be even more important than the encouragement and the reward, even though those things can be important as well. So yes, there's that general theme that monitoring behaviour of all the psychological strategies to change our behaviour, I would say number one is monitoring. If there's something that we can do to boost the effectiveness of most therapies and most therapists, I would say build in some form of objective evaluation. So they're the themes of our podcast today. Well, absolutely, Dad. And thank you for chatting with me about all this. I'll I'll tell you what, if there's... I reckon something I'm going to go and, and do after this is I look down at my wrist and I see the uh, the watch that I wear in these three little bloody rings, Dad, that are the most arbitrary little shape and colour in the world. But I'll tell you what, you feel rotten when you don't get your rings closed for the day and oh, I, I suppose it's another example there of uh, of how monitoring in itself can even just get to you in the uh, the very sense of it because... Yeah, it's the most arbitrary little, almost stupid thing in a way, the fact that it's just whether or not your coloured ring has all the pixels around it, but the degree to which that's almost held me to account and sort of made me feel like a bit of a lazy slob at times, it, uh, I can tell you it works, Dad. Well, that's a very good example, and that's also a mental health intervention. Like we've said before, anything that enhances your physical exercise, increases your physical exercise, is also a mental health intervention. And we haven't talked today about other wearables. When you mention watches, there are also some watches and other methods of measuring something called heart rate variability, which responds positively when people engage in relaxation or meditation techniques. So that's a whole other area we haven't talked about, like wearables and that kind of smart technology which involves monitoring, including mind-body kind of measures, things affecting like heart rate, heart rate variability, that kind of thing. So that's almost like a whole other specific area, but it also fits our theme. What we measure that's what's going to tend to change. And if we measure that in a little bit more targeted, mindful way, we're more likely to get return for effort. Well, I think that's so true, Dad. And as I said a little bit earlier on, we've got a we've got a little bit of research that we have done here at The Practice over a few years and a few articles and stuff to do with that. If you are interested in that, I'll put all of that information up at sykespills.com.au but oh dad it's, it's been an interesting uh interesting chat that we've had today about all this sort of stuff and i look forward to the next one which uh i believe you may have given me a, a bit of a christmas present in terms of the topic on that one so i very much look forward to it good uh people will guess it's got something to do with sport see you next time rowan
See you next time, Rowan.